everyone, and welcome to episode 33 of Relating to DevSecOps, where we explore the development, security, and operational issues of today so that we can solve real-world problems with people that face them. I'm Ken Toller, and I'm joined again by engineer extraordinaire Simon Dolo, who has been my partner in crime for strong opinions and tips on security and engineering in Git. Today, we are going back to the softer side of things with culture and operations and people, um, but it is a relatively technical topic in terms of architecture. Um, today is around Git strategy, branches, and um, general Git operations, working well together. And after all, that's what we're, we're all about here is working well together and making sure that we do things to make each other's lives easier while we're maintaining um, good trajectory and hygiene in our respective disciplines. So, Simon, hello again. Are you ready to uh, to get started? I am. Let's do this. With the puns out of the way, we are we were talking a bit in the pre-show about branching and get strategy and how much we could talk about this. And in episode 31, <clears throat> I think it was 31, we talked about uh, branching and merging and rebasing into branches, um, how we would revert and problems that are associated with sort of keeping things in sync. But Simon, we were talking, you have a pretty strong opinion about like what an overarching branching strategy in an organization should be. Um, and I'm interested and hoping that you'll share. Did you want to, to sort of just go through uh, what your ideal branching strategy is, any uh, benefits, trials, tribulations, things that, uh, that sort of have gotten you to that opinion? Like wh what's a branching strategy? What's the best branching strategy for you? Yeah, so uh, branching strategy, uh, one of my favorite topics near and dear to my heart. I have very specific opinion. I can't say it's uh, it's correct, but it's proved to me the best, most useful. Um, I've had a couple different options through my career, and I, I found that this is probably the easiest to integrate with from a new engineer and old engineer. Um, but yeah, breaking down what I think is important, um, you have a code base, um, you should have a develop branch and a main branch, and I'll explain why I think that matters. I, I've seen a couple places where you just have one branch and either it's always develop, always main. Um, but I'll explain that a little bit more later. Um, and then lastly, um, you've got a feature branch. And so um, breaking down why this matters, um, starting with the easiest one to see feature branch, um, just a way for people to have their own development sandbox. Um, should be pretty free reign. Um, if you have ability to read code and pull it down, um, feature branch, commit whatever, do whatever, um, mess around, experiment a little bit, um, you know, until that's ready to show to someone else, you can do whatever you want. And I think that's perfectly fair. Um, the only caveat I have there, and we talked about rebasing in episode 31 is always rebase off of, um, whatever core, um, core branch that you're working with is, which is going to be developed in this situation. Um, when you're in a place that is good to merge your code and, and get it um, to the next step, which is, you know, a testing environment, a local environment, something in Jenkins that's, you know, testing your code, pull request comes up with your branch, it should be rebased off of develop, um, and it goes through the pull request process. Um, once it's good, everything's good, comments are addressed, and um, hopefully, you know, 
your branch is in a clean, reasonable state that's good for merge, it goes into develop. Um, so that should be through a pull request process. Um, nobody should be directly committing to develop here. Um, that's something that I think is really scary. It's easy to sneak things in. Hopefully you don't have any bad apples, but um, it's very easy to make mistakes like that and get things uh, get things lost. Um, so, you know, build, 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 merge and develop, keeps going, keeps going, keeps going. At some point, um, you want to deploy this. And uh, I think the big caveat here is there's some, you know, some branching strategies are just you merge into develop or main, what have you, and that deploys. Um, I much prefer to have this um, not be deployed yet. It can be to a testing environment, but not to production. It's not one of those branching strategies. Um, once it is, um, it, this is the point where you create what I like to call a release artifact branch. And so this develop branch gets turned into this new separate branch. And that purpose is basically to say, this should be production ready. Let's do some production level testing. So much heavier load testing, integration testing, um, you know, all of the really big stuff that you know you're ready to pull that trigger and go to production. Um, once you uh, once you have that kind of that step, what I what I love is develop is now free again, and so there's no pause to development here. There's no you know, hey, like let's hold up and figure out if we're ready for production. You just keep going. That's a new release. That's just back to the Wild West, back to experimentation, the good old pull request process. Um, last step on that list, release branch is going under you know, some heavy testing. If it's good to go, um, then it's ready for main, which is great. Um, if there's any problems, uh, you go ahead and patch that release branch, which to me I think is a really good way of tracking you know, success if you're testing because you can actually see through your release branch how many actually big problems you had before deploying to production. So get those patched up. Again, you're not touching develop anymore. That is just going as it usually goes. Um, release branch gets gets ready to, to merge. You merge into main, and that's when you actually deploy that, that bad boy to production. Um, well, that's so really my branching strategy in a nutshell. Cool. No, I was just about to ask a question, so I'm glad that you, wrap, it. you wrapped it up. Because uh, my question is, uh, which I think is going to be maybe something some other listeners are thinking as well. Um, I have seen sort of what you're describing, where you have a de um, develop branch that goes into a release branch, release branch into a main branch. Main branch is what's deployed. Uh, that's what you're, you mentioned, right? Right. That's and what's then deployed I've to also, production, yes. I've also seen it go from develop to main to release branch, and the release branches are what are push to production um any comment on why one over the other and if and and really i think what i'm trying to get to here is um if there is a release branch that is uh pushed out to production and you're maintaining uh, a, pr a product release um how do you maintain multiple releases of code so like let's say you have a version one Main is is moving on to version two, so you're going to be deploying version two stuff to support version one, you know, in in that release branch. So version one is theoretically still being deployed, and so is version two. We have this side by side. So I've I've seen it done both ways. Do you have a preference, um, and is there a, um, a reason why you are sort of more on the side of release to main? Yeah, that's that's a really good question, and I'm I'm sure there's a super clever way to kind of finagle this to work the other dimension. But the reason why I really like having main as the end state is ultimately really like 
rollbacks happen, but you should always be rolling forward with releases. So if you're working in develop, you make your list of release artifacts. And eventually, once you say that that's good enough, you're going to want to get that into main. And what you're doing there is basically saying, this is good enough for production. When you do it the other way, and I, I think this is where it gets a little confusing, is if you start with release branches and now you're merging or you're starting with things merging into main and then going into a release branch, it just feels like almost a second step to develop that is very similar where it's kind of in development. Um, and you know, once you have multiple releases, you're essentially like, to me, almost fake committing to uh, the quality of a release because if you're going into main and then you're making a release branch and then you're like, oh well, I want to start another release. Like, where does that go? Because you really haven't you haven't gotten to that like full circle of like this is part of the production ecosystem. It all seems to be in limbo to me. So, to me, I I, I would be worried that that would get really confusing um, when like talking about releases with other engineers. Yeah. Makes sense. No, I mean, it's 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 totally a preference thing. I mean, that's why yeah. we have different branching strategies. I mean, I I have I have less of a firm opinion because I'm not necessarily uh, for me. It's more on the review side, and so uh, when I look at we talked a, a bit about reviewing uh, PRs and rebase and and all that in the last um, in the first part of the series, and. From the review perspective, like one of the things that really, um, I guess is frustrating for me, but also just like a nuance for me is one, the size of teams that are, that I'm working with. So if it's like a really large team, a lot of times they have a lot of, a lot more intermediary branches. So you might have like your sand, your feature sandbox branch, and then you'll have um, like a consolidated branch for whatever that whatever feature those developers are working for because it's like a team of 30. So maybe they're working on different parts of one feature. So you could argue about the definition of a feature. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. And then, uh, and then you have that go into your develop branch and then it sort of follows what you were talking about. So there's these, these more sprawling uh, teams have these different branching strategies that have more steps. Now, personally... My frustration there is when do you insert security into those processes? Because uh, going back to our previous chat, we were talking about um, small commits, right? That we want to have these small commits that go into these branches so that it's easier for people to review. Um, but if you have the small commits and they're closer to the sandbox side of things, then security might not actually be involved at the right time. And so they're reviewing things too early. But if they're too late in the process, they're reviewing large PRs and then they might miss stuff. So for me, it's sort of like this balance of um, on the security side where you can involve your security teams uh, in the most final code that you can at the earliest point in the cycle. So I think that, you know, I like your strategy for sure because it, it separates this ability to release and develop and all that. And when you have that three branch strategy, I mean, that's ideal for me too. Um, so my question to you in that rambling statement is, in your opinion, what size of team is this type of branching strategy for? And would your opinion change if it grew 10x in the number of developers working on the same project? Yeah, that's that's really, really, really good question. Uh, so a couple, couple parts there. Um, I think it's great for any size team. And I think the larger you grow, the more important this becomes. Um, just because you have much more uh, a much more rigorous set of checks and balances in place. Um, 
as a smaller team, you, you may not need this. You may not see a direct benefit. Um, you know, if you're, you, you may not even need a main branch. Um, but I think that kind of goes with every aspect here is the smaller you are, the less likely you're going to miss something because there's, there's less people to track, less code to track, less commits to track. Um, on the security side, uh, I don't think that changes. I don't think you're saying, hey, like, this process is now burdening security. And, I, and the reason why I say that is, you know, we talked about automation um, in episode 32 and when it comes to, to Git flow. And, uh, you know, if you are really just knocking out these crazy amounts of commits and pull requests and you're go hitting develop and it's, you know, going crazy, that's probably a good sign that you need to automate some of the security checks that you have because it's impossible to loop in a security engineer to every single change because we know that, we're likely going to be outnumbering you in an organization. So, you know, I think you should add automation and, you know, we're talking about a release branch. What's great about that is we haven't merged that to main yet. And we haven't deployed it to production. It's ready to go. We haven't paused development, but now we can talk about it with the security team. We can explain, you know, at a high level what we're working on um, and what the impact is. And if there's a red flag, like, hey, we can check out that branch. You can see exactly what's going to be going into main if you do really want to scrutinize it. So... Yeah, my short story is is I'm I'm still all for this branching strategy regardless of team size. Cool. No, I mean you make a good point. I think that one of the things you said that resonated for me there is uh, definitely the importance of automation and and then testing. If you have a large development team and you are having all these branches, um, and this this ability to do that, then you should also have the ability to. Uh, work with those engineering teams to write some security tests. So it goes back, which goes back to some of the testing episodes we've done around being more um, proactive in what you are writing. And also, I think that it's important, and I don't think all engineers are going to agree with me here, that you're more prescriptive the larger you are uh, in what security controls or standards you have inside of your code base. So I think that the Wild West mentality is, is sort of good for small teams or if you can keep a small team within a large organization. But I think that there is a factor of the larger that the team grows and the harder it is for security to maintain that, the more standardized you have to be as your if your security staff doesn't scale with your engineering staff. So you can you can scale uh, the the sort of um, startup mentality if you scale all teams equally, <laughs> right? So you can be, you can be like fast and loose and like have all these folks if you scale that, but I don't think that the market necessarily supports it in terms of people available to do these things. Right. And so if you want these large development teams that are working on these big monolithic projects or projects that have a lot of dependencies that, that are moving fast, that you, you have to sort of, um, close that gap with automation and with being more prescriptive and standardizing what you, what you are structuring and it's less experimentation or you take your, your experimental stuff and you make smaller things out of it or more consumable stuff out of it. So I don't know. I mean, it's a balance, right? So there is that. Uh, one of the other things we talked about, I think in um, just your branching strategy is, and we haven't really touched on yet is like who does what? in in the um in that so you mentioned your sandbox uh and you mentioned that you're sort of merging from feature to um your develop branch and main branch and that there is a 
that you should have a prescriptive pull request process when you're going into your main branch or your release branch. Um, what roles in an organization do you think should perform each of these tasks? I mean, obviously we can skip the development part. The engineers are obviously doing that, um, but there may be other folks contributing to development and, you know, who approves, uh, what are the teams involved in approving? Like who, do, you know, from an engineering perspective, who do you think should be involved in that and have access to what inside of a, a repo? Yeah, I can't say I have all of the answers to that question, but um, yeah, I can definitely give you my two cents. So, uh, you know, I, I try to, I would hope that for engineers of a team that owed a code base, they should have the ability to um, submit pull requests for any aspects of this process. And the reason why I say that is, you know, I've seen some previous roles where, you know, only the, the most senior tech lead person of your group can uh, create a release branch or uh, submit pull requests to merge the release branch into master. And okay, that's that's fair. Like they probably know the code base the most, but I still think there is a pull request there that needs review. Um, I've seen, you know, release artifacts where maybe like the version number isn't right. And you have a potential of rewriting an old version if, you know, your artifact repository is set up that way. I still want eyes on it. It doesn't matter what it is and who it is. So to me, again, like the reason why this this branching strategy is so nice is everything is protected, everything has a backup plan, and everything has a review process. So, you know, from the engineering side, I think everyone, um, I would say the question, the, the, the piece that I never have a good answer for is folks on DevOps and folks on security and whether or not they should have full uh, review access or commit access. Um, I think it's fair because the, the pull request and branching strategy exists, but you know, I, I know some companies believe in, you know, a much firmer state of checks and balances where, you know, a security practitioner's role is not to add new code or features to this code base. Therefore they shouldn't have pull request access or co like commit access. Same thing with DevOps. I don't know if I fully agree with that. I think a more collaborative group um, and a more full stack group is always uh, better in my opinion, but um, that certainly, you know, may not be a common scenario. Yeah. I mean, I think that it depends on the skills of the, the folks you're working with. So yeah. I think DevOps is always going to need, um, I don't know about full access, uh, but enough access to deploy the code and analyze it to the, to the point where they can deploy it. I mean, a lot of times they are, I mean, we know that engine, I mean, I'm going to make the statement engineers aren't always the best at documenting how to deploy their application. And there's a no. lot that goes into, um, DevOps having to deploy it to production and also DevOps, uh, to be fair, you know, they may not provide engineering teams with all the information that they need to know what they need to deploy to production because they're not deploying to production. It's the DevOps right. responsibility. So I think that there is a, there's definitely um, access to the code base is important for DevOps. And in most places I've seen DevOps have access to all code, um, at least code that is being deployed into a production environment because that's their responsibility. They're responsible for the production environment so they should know what goes into that. I'm, I don't disagree there. There might be some uh, nuance around which level of DevOps engineer or management needs access, like if they're actually doing the work versus whether they're just managing the team. I think that there's some separation of duties you could probably do there. Like if you have one of the, I mean, this happens in security too. Like I think a lot of security teams think that they should have access to everything because they're security. And I think that's the wrong mindset. In fact, 
one of one of the things I really try to do um, when I'm bringing security to an organization or if I'm trying to work through it, I think we all go through that phase where security does have access to a lot more than they should because they're controlling the security controls. And so they naturally have that access. But you should eventually be weaning yourself off of that to the point where security is adopting the same controls as every other engineer in the organization, whether that's um, your DevOps team or whatever. If you're enforcing that, like, say, your developers don't have admin access on their laptops, which is a big, I mean, this is everywhere um, I I run into this issue because most of the time you're using command line tools that developers need access to. And so there's a, there's a real difficulty in managing that in terms of versioning and, you know, how often a CLI tool uh, gets updated and making sure that that's all secure. If you're going to enforce that on development teams, it should also be enforced on you as a security practitioner. I, I believe. Yeah, Um, no, Absolutely. So, I mean, there's just like, uh, I, that's a bit of a tangent, but just sort of the roles that you're talking about is like, you know, what can your, what can your security folks do, your DevOps people do? And to your point, there are, there are now teams, and I'm so happy to see this, like, uh, in recent years, you know, product security has become its own discipline practice as opposed to application security. And so when you are functioning as part of the product and you are developing uh, these things, I think it's important for you to have access. Also, if you have a strong, I know it's a kind of a buzzword, but security champion program where your engineers are actually performing security tasks uh, and they are still considered part of the security team, it's also important for them to have access to be able to do that. We also brought up an example around uh, security finding bugs that they could fix on the spot and submitting a pull request for it and that cultivating a more collaborative environment between your engineering team and your security team. I think if your organization fosters that, there's no reason not to, to sort of go down that path of providing security with a bit of access. Now, should security have access to all code bases? Probably not, right? They should be uh, assigned and removed and attached to whatever they're responsible for. Uh, as a consultant, I've come into organizations where I don't have access to any of the code. In fact, I might have a access to a specific release branch, a, a, an artifact of a release branch provided in a, you know, an archive file of some sort or sent to me is like, you know, you analyze this code, which from an assessment perspective gives us a, a point in time that we're assessing so that if anything that we find has been fixed before we have found it in the time that we, it's taken us to do the engagement, you know, it's not like, oh, well, we fixed this already. Right. We it, it time boxes us. It gives us a, a particular scope to work on. It, it's all it's all good. But if we're doing recurring testing, like if we're on a six month project where our task is to review code on a recurring basis, that's not going to work. Right. Because that means that an engineer has to take time out of their day every so often to cut a new release for us. And we are always going to be behind on recurring testing because we're never going to have the most up-to-date code, especially in a fast-moving organization. So I think it it comes down to what is the role of the security practitioner, as you say, engineer, analyst, whatever, and then what are, what are their roles based on that? Just like you handle any other uh, identity access management decision in terms of uh, providing access to repositories. Um, <clears throat> that answer, was there a question? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know if there was a question, but that's totally fair. I mean, 
based on what you just said, is there anything that engineers could be doing better in that in that aspect? I mean, what what you're saying is a very much a kind of leadership chosen strategic decision in terms of what you as a security practitioner gets access to. And I mean, I think this branching strategy is important. You do have to understand who you're giving access to, who can, you know, write code, access these code bases. But like from your side of things, like it, it seems like that, you know, it's very limiting. And there's, I'm just curious if there's anything a product engineer could help with without, you know, breaching any legal problems. No, I mean, product engineers can help um, a lot by helping security to decide on what they want to use as a as a collective organization. So I think that product engineers should be more involved in helping to make security decisions. So, um, and I don't mean that they should be making the security decisions. That's why security is, is on board, like to analyze that. But just like any other role uh, or analytical role, um, whether that's market research or um, you know, data analytics or security in this particular case, I think that security is going to spend time telling you what's wrong with your code from a security perspective, and they're going to give you options on how to resolve it. Bad security teams will say, this is cross-site scripting, or this is SQL injection, go fix it. Here's a reference. Good security teams will say, hey, I noticed that you have this particular type of vulnerability. We've been able to identify that this is a recurring issue across the board. Here are some options that we would like that, that you can use to resolve it. Or can you help me figure out like what would help you solve this issue uh, more consistently and using that to build guidelines? Because the more we can get consistent on how we solve security problems, the better that, I mean, one, it goes back to that automation comment you had before. It allows us to um, be more prescriptive in what we are asking for. So if we know, I mean, we go back to the, it allows us to write security tests for things we know are approved by product engineering. It allows product engineering to be a part of that discussion. It means that when you have made a decision, you have support from the product engineering team to solve this issue, as opposed to berating them with, like it's just wrong. And so I think that product engineers can do a better job by either helping to be a part of the resolution rather than patching, like sort of slap patching everything together. Um, you know, like if there's something like, hey, or being inquisitive to security teams about their ideas for solving problems. And then security teams need to be able to listen to that feedback and to listen to the approach and if they disagree why and you know come to that collaborative resolution i think that is where we can work best together um but it's just i it really just comes down to product engineers taking more responsibility for the resolution of the security in their products and then security engineers being more um open and resilient and resilient to um, other approaches that they may not have seen before and working with the team to come up with something that is consistent, right? That I think that is the answer. It, it's, it's not something that necessarily just product engineers can do better. It's like if the product engineer takes the initiative to do these things better, the security practitioner needs to be willing to listen. And 
only in that like happy equation is there going to be success in the security of the organization. As long as there's that adversarial relationship, it's never going to work. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. That, maybe that answers the question. But I think that we have issues on both sides where product engineers just want to fix it and move on. And security engineers just want to tell you what's wrong and give you the, the most basic fix they can. There's always going to be those two people in the world. Oh, yeah. And taking it back to branching strategy, what's great about this one is you can address both of those. You have a critical issue. You have a wonderful release branch. We're ready to take that that patch and move on. Is it a little bit weirder? You're going to experiment a little bit. Guess what? You have a developed branch for you to do that, too. So there's no excuse. <laughs> yeah. I had to bring it back to home base I had, here. I had to. I had to. Cool. Um, so anything else on branching strategies or tangents of branching strategies you wanted to cover? Um, I, I think just, just being transparent that you do have to be careful. Like you need to do your due diligence. I know we're talking a lot about access control. It does matter. Um, and just proper coding hygiene, if you're willing to have this branching strategy can, can be a deal breaker if you don't. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, keeping your branches clean, understanding the process, having good commit messages, I think is a really important one. Um, I think it's really easy to uh, think of a pull request as just looking at the code until it gets merged, um, especially if you're in a single branch strategy where you're just merging constantly into this one thing, it gets deployed and you keep going. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure every engineer has seen those commit messages. It's just like commit-am changes, commit-am fix. Um, you know, that's meaningless. The You know, when things break or you're curious about stuff later on, you want to see who did what, um, well, that's going to mean nothing. So I'm just kind of PSAing of have tickets tied to your commit messages, squash your commits into something when it's ready for merge. That way it's just like one big change. Um, have a good description of with, with what's happening before merging that in. Um, and just understand, uh, you know, who's who's doing it. One thing in the back of my mind that always freaks me out is, is I know without explicitly saying so, um, you know, if you're committing to a repository or, or pull, pull making a pull request, um, it's very easy without having signing set up in, in Git. And Ken, you can like elaborate more on this because uh, this is less of my field. But uh, you know, in a previous role, I have seen the ability to just literally forge commits where you know it's really just a pure auth based um, you know kind of push with with your code. But it just takes your configuration options by default. So you know, you change my email. It can be, you know, John Smith instead of Simon committing this code. And um, just being understanding that if you're going to follow this strategy, make sure you know what's happening and make sure you know who has access to what. Um, and Soapbox PSA rant about yeah. <laughs> everything about branching strategies. But yeah, I mean, I do think that um, the whole forging commits thing is an issue it's absolutely possible um the commit signing is something maybe we can dig into the next episode um we should certainly talk about it i think that it got some traction uh it lost traction it hasn't necessarily been a huge issue recently in terms of just like um publicity but um something to talk about we'll leave that as a teaser maybe and just to spend an episode on commit signing but uh, as for today or tonight, that wraps us up. 
uh, for this episode. And I think we're right around 30 minutes. So trying to keep it short and sweet for you all. Um, again, thank you all for listening. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, send us feedback. Let us know what you want to hear about, what you want to do. Uh, next week, we might be getting into um, recording something else besides Git. But if not, commit signing might be on the docket. Keep an eye out for what's coming. Again, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>